found in the book of Revelation. You're going, book of Revelation? What? Yeah, turn if you're in your Bibles, if you have a Bible, to Revelation chapter 12. You're going to be looking at the first five verses there. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and we've got the guys up there passing them out right now. Revelation chapter 12. Verses 1 through 5 this morning. Title of the story, our stories. Title of the study this morning is The Real Grinch of Christmas. You know, every now and then, hold on a minute, let me turn on, it feels a little warm up here. I'm going to. Check the heat first. Before we get started, you know, it's like you guys will be asleep in five minutes. There we go. All right. How's this for teaching? Walking up and down the aisles. (laughs) Every now and then, a cartoon character sticks out in your mind. And I remember back in 1966, yes, I'm that old, when the movie How the Grinch Told Christmas came out. And I really didn't like that movie. And why? Because the Grinch creeped me out. I mean, just, the, 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 you know, to begin with, it was Dr. Seuss. Then I had that crazy-looking Mr. Grinch. I mean, you see him up there. I mean, it's just this evil-looking guy. And then, then it's the song, you know, with the deep voice. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch, you know. And it goes on. You're a heel. You're as cuddly as a cactus. You're as charming as an eel, Mr. Grinch. And then it goes, you're a banana with a greasy black peel. He's a monster. His heart's an empty hole. His brain is full of spiders. He's got garlic in his soul. What is it? His heart is full of unwashed socks. His soul is full of gunk. The three words that best describe him are as follows, and I quote, stink, stank, stunk. You guys all know it. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. Now, a part of the story goes like this. And the more the Grinch thought of what Christmas would bring, the more the Grinch thought, I must stop the whole thing. So his plan was to dress up as Santa Claus and invade Whoville and and steal all the presents in the trees and basically anything that had to do with Christmas. And he dragged all of them up to his lair overlooking Whoville and waited with a sinister grin, thinking he could steal what was going on in the people's hearts. Of course, he was wrong. With that said, there is in the Bible a Grinch, if you will, one who also tried to steal Christmas. And maybe some of you are thinking, well, it's got to be Herod the Great. I mean, that's who you got to be talking about. He, he tried to steal Christmas with his diabolical plan to kill all the babies in Bethlehem uh, two years and younger. Or perhaps it was the innkeeper, you know, who wouldn't allow Mary and Joseph a place to stay in the inn. But all of those are really just pawned in our story. You see, behind the scene is the ultimate Grinch. He's the director and the producer of all the other Grinches. The Bible identifies him as Satan or the devil and a host of other names. Look now at Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. And his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Let's pray one more time. 
Father, we thank you for this time this morning, this opportunity to celebrate the birth of your son. We thank you, Lord, for bringing us all together as a family to rejoice and praise you for all that you've done. We pray, Lord, that you'd bless our time together as we look to your word. We pray, Father, if there's anyone here that has joined us that is yet to come into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray, Lord, that they would see their need for him and they would turn to him this morning. So we thank you for this time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in these first five verses of Revelation chapter 12, there's just a few things I want you all to notice. First of all, it's the dominant players in the story. In fact, there's three that are named here. There's a woman, there's a child that she bears, and there's a dragon that attacks the child. Those are the dominant players in the story. Now, calling according to John here in verse 1, he calls them a, a great sign. Now, that word for great is the word mega in the Greek. So John is saying, man, this is a mega sign. This is a, a big deal here. This woman, this child, and this dragon, this is huge. It has far-reaching implications. John sees great signs happening with great significance. And the first one he recognizes and he points to is, number one, a woman. Now, I know it's Christmas, and it's tempting to see this woman as perhaps Mary, as the one who would give birth to Jesus. The Catholic Church would assert that this is a description of the Virgin Mary. I could go through to great length explaining why it's simply not the case. But I believe the text is pretty clear. I believe the woman being referred to here is actually the nation of Israel, and the child that she is bearing is Jesus Christ. Now, how do we know that? Well, because frequently in the Old Testament, the, the, the nation of Israel is referred to as a woman, in some cases, even the wife of God. But just to sort of put a, a bow on it for you, just to wrap it in a pretty package, just to really put it under the tree for you, uh, here, here it is. Uh, when you read about the, the sign of a woman and the sun and the moon and the 12 stars, it immediately takes Bible readers back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 37, where young Joseph, he had that dream, and, and the dream that he told his brothers and then his mom and his dad, and he says, hey guys, I had this dream, and, and in my dream there was a sun, and the moon, and the stars, and they all bowed down to me. Well, his dad, Jacob, you know, knew exactly what that referred to, and he said, what? Do you think me and your mother and your brothers are all going to bow down to you? But you see, in that story, Jacob identifies the sun, the moon, and the stars as a nation of Israel that would begin the family, uh, begin with the family, the twelve tribes. So we have a picture of the twelve, uh, the nations of Israel about ready to give birth to the most significant child in history. That's what this woman is. And that's what John sees in this passage. Now, we would expect that in any passage about God's plan for humanity, that Israel would be at the center. Because Israel is always at the center of God's redemptive plan. In fact, Zechariah 2 verse 8 says that Israel is called the apple of God's eye. There's no getting around the fact that Israel has a key place in Bible prophecy. It always has. Israel is pretty much, uh, in all the end times descriptions in some way, shape, or form, Israel is God's, God's yardstick. Israel is God's blueprint. Every Christian is blessed because of Israel. Nations are not blessed if they turn their back on Israel. And we have a, a Bible that, that is effectively a Jewish book. We worship a Jewish Messiah. Israel is God's program for what he is doing in the world. Now, some people may think, well, God has turned his back on the Jewish people, but that's not true. God has not altered his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob or his descendants. The Jews are and were God's chosen people. And that's what John sees in this passage. 
You may, may recall that the angel said to Joseph, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That, that's a Jewish nation, first and foremost, and then the world. Well, next we have the child. Now, this is not just any child. This is, what we, this is where we have our Christmas story. And I believe this, this child speaks of none other than Jesus. Look at verse 5. We read of the woman. She bore a male child who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Now, why do I believe that verse 5 is speaking of Jesus? Well, Psalm 2 is actually linked to uh, verse 5 here. Psalm 2, verse 7 through 9 says this. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. See the same words there. He rules a nation with a rod of iron. Verse 5 also shows us the incarnation that Jesus is born. It's, it's what we celebrate this morning, but it doesn't stop there. We also see his ascension as he's caught up to the throne of God and we have his coronation. See, here we have a, a child being born from a nation that will one day rule the nations of the world. And isn't that exactly how Isaiah the prophet predicted Jesus would come eventually? Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. That was the prediction by the prophet Isaiah. The child would be born to rule the world. So we see the dominant players in our story. We have number one, the woman, the nation of Israel. We have number two, the child. Jesus comes forth from this nation. And then finally, the third player in our story, the dragon, the real Mr. Grinch. His heart is full of unwashed socks. His soul is full of gunk. The three words that best describe him most. He stink, stink, stank, and stunk. Well, look, uh, we read here that he's just waiting for the child to be born. Look at verses 3 and 4. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. So using the language of Dr. Seuss, you could say of Satan, the more Satan thought of what Christmas would bring, the more Satan thought, I must stop this whole thing. That's what verse 4 is all about. Satan fell from heaven. We know the Bible tells us that he drew a third of the angels with him when he did. Those fallen angels are now demons to do his dirty work. They're Satan's stormtroopers, if you will, his mini Grinches. We're told that he has seven heads that speaks of his incredible intelligence, yes, his IQ is off the chart. He also has ten horns and seven diadems that speaks of his world authority to go out and, and tempt people. But it also kind of gives us an answer why. It answers to the question of why since, why since I've become a Christian. Why, uh, you know, since I want to serve the Lord, why do I feel like I've been hassled more than ever before that I was a Christian? Why does it seem like I'm going through more trials and things are just going on in my life you know, ever since I gave my life to the Lord? Here's the reason. Satan hates everything that God loves. And God loves you so much. And you gave your life to him. And Satan is wanting to do whatever he can to stop you from loving him, from serving him, from worshiping him. See, if you give your life to Jesus Christ, hell is not going to give you a standing ovation. That's why the attacks increase. But also why Jesus says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Satan's no match for our God and Savior. 
And that's what we see in this real story of Christmas. So we have the dominant players. The woman, the child, and the dragon. Next we have the diabolical plot. The diabolical plot is we'll discover Satan, the dragon, ready to consume the child as soon as it was born. Why? Because that would be the child's undoing. See, Revelation chapter 12 gives us the big picture of what Christmas is, is, is about and why Satan hates it. That is why these, these atheistic groups are out there bent on killing Christmas, removing manger scenes from public places, removing Christmas cards and Christmas carols from public schools. Maybe you read uh, just a few weeks ago in, in Killian, Texas, how a Charlie Brown poster was ordered to be taken down because it showed Linus on it with the words he uttered in the 1965 animated holiday special. For unto us a child is born, uh, for unto you is, is born in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. That was on a poster. The school board said it's got to come down. But the, the person, the teacher that, that uh, put it up there, she had the backing of Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, and the poster stayed. But, but I noticed someone penned this artwork here, and you look at that. And, and that's what we see going on in the world. Now, I have to say, these atheistic groups that, that are out there, they're trying to destroy Christmas. They're trying to remove uh, major scenes from public property. Anything to do with God, they, they, they don't, really don't understand. Because they're just really a pawn uh, to Mr. Grinch, to the dragon. I don't even think they understand what they're doing. Kind of reminds me a little bit of the statement of Christ from the cross when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Listen, the devil who hates Christ knows exactly what he's doing. The devil's hatred was directed towards the Jewish people and their Messiah. The, the cosmic feud goes all the way back to the very first book in the Bible. There we find really the first Christmas passage. The first messianic scripture. Actually, Genesis 3.15, after Adam and Eve sinned against God and ate of the forbidden fruit, the curse has now come upon humanity. And the Lord says to the devil, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Effectively putting Satan on, uh, the Lord is putting Satan on notice. There's coming one, there's coming one that's going to crush your head, and you'll bruise his heel. Now, who's that speaking of? Well, obviously, it's speaking of Jesus Christ. Who crushed the head of the devil? Jesus did. Yes, the devil did bruise his heel. Remember Isaiah 53, 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So, at the cross, Satan was crushed, and Jesus was bruised. Now, listen. If I were to tell you, okay, after service this morning, I'm going to meet you in the parking lot, and I'm going to crush your skull. Okay, you'd say, that wouldn't be good news, would it, you know? you say, Tom, come on, it's Christmas, okay? Can you do it on another day? No, no, okay. First of all, it's not going to happen. I couldn't do it. Secondly, I wouldn't do it. But if you were reasonably sure that I had the capacity to do it and I had the mean streak in me to do it, if you believe that the promises were true, that you would do everything then in your power to keep me from crushing your skull, so when God says to Satan, there's someone coming, a child, who will be born of a woman who's going to crush your skull, Satan's going to do everything he can to put an end to that, to make sure it doesn't happen. And as you read through your Bible, you discover that throughout history, long before Christmas ever happened, Satan was trying to destroy the woman before the child could even be born. Thus, he tried to stop the Jewish people, destroy the Jewish nation. Because Jesus would come from the Jewish people. Go, go to the second book of the Old Testament, the book of, of, of Exodus. The Jewish population was growing. 
Pharaoh saw them as a threat. He gave a decree to kill all the Jewish boys uh, at birth. But through God's providence, a baby was preserved that entered into Pharaoh's court and was trained and there ultimately became a great lawgiver, Moses. There in the very beginning, we have the Pharaoh trying to kill the Jews, trying to stop the line of the Messiah. Then we go through the period of the judges. You have Satan using Israel's neighbors trying to destroy them. Not so unlike what's happening today. Yet God preserved his people through all of these assaults and raised up judges like Samson and Deborah and Gideon and others. Satan inspired King Saul to murder David, thus stopping the messianic line. But that didn't work. Now, why would he do that? Because David, again, was the family line of Christ. The Messiah would come through the line of David. We know that Christ was the root and the offspring of David, but that too failed. Then we get to the book of Esther. We have the plot of the anti-Semite Haman to wipe out all the Jews. He even, he even built gallows to hang all of them on. Yet God providentially placed a beautiful Queen Esther in the palace. She intervened for the people, and ultimately Haman hung on his own gallows. Yet the devil still wasn't done. Having to wipe out the people of God in the Messianic line, he attempted to murder the Messiah himself before he could do his saving work. Remember those, those uh, mysterious wise men blew into town having seen a star. They wanted to know where the king of the Jews was, and they wanted to worship him. Well, that's the last thing you say to a crazy man like King Herod. I mean, that was a threat to his throne. Hearing the Messiah was to be born, uh, you know, he checked it out with the scholars and determined it's going to be in Bethlehem. So what does Herod do? You know, he sends uh, 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 soldiers there to Bethlehem and has all those babies under the age of two put to death trying to stop Jesus from coming. That failed, of course, as well. Christ, of course, was born. But the attacks continued on. You remember when the Lord was beginning his ministry, the devil tempted him in the wilderness, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and in a moment of time and said, listen, I'll give all this to you if you just bow down and worship me. Uh, you know, it's mine to give if you'll worship me. Now, what's interesting about that statement is Jesus didn't refute that, didn't refute it. If it were not correct, Jesus would have said, whoa, you know, they're not yours to give. But, but it was true. Satan was the God of this world and had control of the kingdoms of this world. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the devil was saying, in effect, uh, look, Jesus, we both know why you're here. You're here to purchase back that which was lost in the garden. I will give it to you on a silver platter, you know, if you just give me the satisfaction of bowing down and worshiping me. That's always been the devil's problem. He wanted the top job. That's why he lost his once exalted position in heaven. According to Isaiah, he said, I want to be like God. I want to rule over these things. And God says, actually, you're out of here. You're fired. I guess it would be now. You're terminated. That's a reference to Arnold Schwarzenegger taking over the, the apprentice in, anyway. But here the devil was at it again, telling Jesus to fall down and worship him. And Jesus, of course, refuted that and said, you shall worship the Lord your God and only him shall you serve. But the point is, you know, he was being diverted. The devil was attempting to divert Jesus from his course, which was, of course, to seek out and to save those who were lost. Even after Jesus started his ministry, these attacks continued on. Listen, Jesus' own neighbors there in Nazareth sought to put him to death. Remember the time that they actually took Christ to the edge of the cliff and, and they were preparing to push him off. And the Bible tells us in Luke 4 that, that he calmly passed through their midst and went his way. I love that section. Why? Because his hour is not yet come. 
You know, you read scriptures like that, and it reminds you that, that as a Christian, you're indestructible until God is done with you. But when your hour does come, when your date with destiny arrives, when your moment to enter eternity is here, there's nothing you can do to change that. That's why you want to, you know, to live your life well and for the glory of God in the interim. Well, Christ's hour finally came. What was that? Well, it's the hour where he would suffer and die for the sins of the world. And in a way, you might look at that as though the devil prevailed. Judas is scared, betraying Jesus, Jesus being crucified on the cross. But that brings us to the whole purpose of Christmas. That's why Jesus came. Jesus was born to die. That's why Satan wanted to kill Christmas. That's why Satan is the ultimate Mr. Grinch. See, he doesn't care if you, you know, decorate your house with all these fine trappings. He doesn't care if you shop till you drop, you know. He doesn't care if you, if you, you know, you, you know, had all these lights strung up. He doesn't even applaud when you go, you know, to people get drunk at the office party for the holidays. But if you take and you contemplate and you think about what Christmas is all about, that gets the enemy angry. He certainly did not want you to be here this Sunday morning on Christmas. Because if Satan can't stop Christmas, he would rather uh, we not understand it. Maybe that's the problem with, with our Christmas celebrations is we, we made it too beautiful, you know. Doesn't that sound odd? You know, maybe, maybe uh, it's too beautiful. We have all these images of sleighs and, and snow and freshly baked goods and the wrap packages under the tree and all the music that goes with it. But we can miss what Christmas is all about. It's a beautiful, it, it, it is beautiful, but in another way, it's quite tragic. That little baby was born to die on the cross. That's why red is the color of Christmas. Not because Santa wears red, not because holly berries are red, not because we like red wrapping paper. Because red is the color of the blood of Jesus that was shed from the cross. He was born to die so we might live. That's what we see here in the story. That's what we see in this heavenly perspective. We see what's really going on here. The Bible says, Cursed is every man that hangs on a tree. You want to talk about a Christmas tree? That's not the one you buy at a, a lot, you know, and put on the roof of your car and then you drag out, you know, out of your garage and put up. No, it's a tree that Jesus hung on. The cross where he bore the sins of the world. And why did he do it? Isaiah 118. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be as wool. So the dragon of Revelation 12 was fiery red as he tries to stop the first Christmas. But it didn't work out so well for him. Plan backfired. He was unable to stop him. He was unable to stop the Messiah from being born. He was unable to stop the Messiah from finishing his redemptive plan. He was unable to stop Jesus from rising from the dead. He was unable to stop Jesus from being exalted into heaven. And he is unable to stop Jesus from coming back and ruling and reigning upon this earth. And I say, Amen, Hallelujah. Now, since all of this work, all of this concentrated effort to stop the plan of God and the prophecies from being fulfilled didn't work, what does the devil do now? Well, that's where you and I come in. Unable to stop that, he now turns his fierceness and his wrath to individuals to keep individuals from coming into a right relationship with God. In the same passage we're looking at this morning, I'm reading from Revelation 12, just a few verses down. It says in verse 12, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth, for Satan has now come down having a great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Satan knows his time is short. He knows his doom is certain. But in the meantime, he wants to take down as many people as he can or to put it in Grinch's language to steal Christmas from as many people's hearts as he possibly can. 
He wants to stop people from coming into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. That's his goal right now. Why? Because he knows that he doesn't have much time left. Jesus is coming back. So because of that, Satan, the real Grinch, would love to steal Christmas from the hearts of men and women. But here's the good news. Though you can be hassled by the enemy, you'll never have more than you can handle. God knows your breaking point. He's put a wall of protection around every believer. He'll never allow you to be tested above what you are able. You can be confident in the fact. You can be victorious in your relationship with Jesus Christ as you follow him. Finally, what did the Grinch in the movie do in the story written by Dr. Seuss? What was the real problem going on inside of that Grinch? Well, I'll recite what the movie says. The narrator says, And he puzzled, and he puzzled, till his puzzler was sore. And then the Grinch thought of something he never thought before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas perhaps means a little bit more. What happened next? Well, and who will, will, who will they say that the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day? Folks, isn't that always the issue? It's the heart. It's the heart. The Bible says in Proverbs 4.23, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. The Bible says if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, that is if you trust in Him, you rely on Him, you cling to Him, from the core of you, you will be saved. That's God's intention for you this morning if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He wants to give you a Christmas you'll never forget by you surrendering your life to Him. But it all begins in the heart. And some of you need a heart transplant. You need God to take out that heart of stone, as the Bible calls it, and put within you a soft heart, a heart touched by God. That's what God wants to do. He wants to give you the, the, the gift of eternal life. Don't let the ultimate Grinch, the director and the producer of all other Grinches, the devil himself, steal the truth about Jesus, about Christmas. Christmas is about Jesus. And I can't think on Christmas Day of a better time than now to unwrap the present gift of salvation, to receive Jesus as Savior. The one who came into this world as a tiny baby, who would go under the cross as a bleeding, dying Savior, but will eventually come back as a King of kings and Lord of lords to rule the nations of the world. Will you let him rule in your heart this morning? Today, will you give your life to him? If that's your desire, I want to give you an opportunity. Let's pray right now. Father, we thank you for the story that we find in your word. We see, Lord, that it's much bigger picture than what we've ever seen before. And Father, we thank you, Lord, of what it signifies, your great love for us, that you would send your son to, to this earth to be born and to die for us. And nothing would stop that because that was your plan to redeem us, Lord. Sinful man, to buy back what we've done, Lord, so we would not have to pay that penalty because you gave it to your son. He took upon himself the beatings that we would live, that we would have life. And I pray right now, Father, if there's anyone here that has joined us this morning that, that doesn't have this new life in you, they're not born again, their sin has not been forgiven. We know your word says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I pray, Father, if there's anyone here that has not received the gift of eternal life, that they would make the decision this morning to turn from their sin and turn towards you and commit their life to you and find that forgiveness of sin. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, is there anyone here you want to give your life to Jesus Christ this morning? You want to be born again? You want your sin forgiven? If that's your desire, would you just raise your hand this morning so I can pray for you? This is just between you and the Lord. 
I'm giving you the opportunity to come to know him as your Lord and as your Savior and as your King. If that's your, your desire, just raise your hand so I can pray for you. Anybody at all? So, Father, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord. We thank you that we can rejoice as a family in our Savior, our King, born in that that stable so long ago, Lord, but in our hearts here this morning. We thank you for uh, your presence here among us. We thank you, Lord, for the the love and the grace and, and the blessings you've given to us in our lives and in this church, Lord. And we praise you and we give you all the glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.